probably, and without this summer in, in minimum sea ice extent in 2007, we might not have had a polar prediction project. I mean, it was so dramatic that people thought, I mean, they were so much taken by surprise and thought, well, if this is coming our way, you know, we are not prepared, we need to do something. So I think this was one of the key factors as to why we have a polar prediction project and the year of polar prediction. The iSpot is the podcast about polar science and the people. We talk to scientists who went on board Polarstern, the German research icebreaker, for the biggest research expedition in the Arctic. Hello and welcome. This is the IcePod, the official podcast for the year of polar prediction to support the mosaic one-year ice drift in the Arctic Ocean. My name is Kirstin Werner and with me is my colleague Sarah. Hello, how are you doing? Hello, Kirstin. I'm doing good, thanks. Today we have another very special guest. Uh, I would say even <laughs> more than special because it's our boss. It's yeah. Thomas Jung. Hi, Thomas. How are you doing? Hi. Yeah, perfectly fine. Thank you very much. Pleasure being here. Yes, for us too, actually. We wanted to record this uh, a while ago, but now we have even two reasons to have you here at this podcast. So one is you are chair of the PPP Polar Prediction uh, Project Steering Group. Um, so you are the person who has been driving Yop for now, I think more than eight years. And then the second reason to have you on the podcast is that you were the one who won the first um, Twitter challenge for the targeted observing periods. Yeah, thank you very much. I still have to update my CV. I promised <laughs> this on the web, you know, but uh, I haven't come around doing that yet. Yes, please. It's a game changer. That's right. Yeah, yeah it will make a difference. Um, yeah, it's yeah. true. Then in, in we started the, all the discussion of the Polar Prediction Project and later on the year of Polar Prediction in a meeting in autumn 2011. That was a little bit less than a year you know, after I arrived at, uh, at the Alfred Wittner Institute. Um, so it was basically yeah. one of my first projects I kicked off as uh, you know, working at, uh, at the Alfred Wittner Institute. So before that, you stayed at the ECMWF in Reading right. for quite a while, more than nine years or so. Yeah, great. Ten great years in, in the UK. And you know, some, unlike some of my other colleagues, I really enjoyed it in the UK, both work-wise, you know, excellent science paired with nice people, you know, with a European background. And actually, yeah. I also quite like the southeast of England. You know, you can do lots of good stuff. And uh, so, yeah, it was a good, a full good package. But then, you know, Germany and, you know, the job on offer was also quite tempting. And then we decided uh, to move back to Germany, basically. Yeah, because you got you got a professorship at the University of Bremen here in Germany and also at the Alfred Wegener Institute, where you also um, are the section head of the section climate dynamics. I would always turn this around. I would say I'm, I have been hired as leading the, the section okay. at the Alfred Wegener Institute. And on top of that, I'm a professor at the University of Bremen because I'm a cooperating yeah. professor, you know, but I think, you know, with a reduced teaching. So I, my main purpose is really doing research. And so, so the question is actually, before we come to targeted, to the targeted observing periods, how come you became this leader of this 10 year effort year of polar prediction what motivated you to do that and who how does it happen how did it happen to you 
Well, when I was in, in England at ECMWF, I was engaged in the World Weather Research Program and WMO's World Weather Research Program and Thorpex, which was one of the predecessor programs of PPP. And mm -hmm. there I was in the in the dynamical and dynamics and uh, dynamical processes working group. And uh, then when 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 I left uh, ECMWF, there was this discussion of, uh, you know, establishing these new program projects like the polar prediction projects or the S2S subseasonal to seasonal prediction project. And the, the guy who was in charge back then at WMO in doing this, there were two. Um, it was basically my previous director. At, um, at ECMWF, mm -hmm. and it was Gilbert Brunet, who was the chief of the World Weather Research Program. I, I knew them very well. They knew I, would, I moved into a polar research, and I, they thought it was a great combination. Okay, yeah. And then they asked me uh, to, to chair the project, basically at the beginning of 2011. And then I remember, you know, Peter Lemke was still a professor there. I mean, he was the one basically who attracted me to, to come to Bremerhaven, and he said, you know, that's a great opportunity you to get to go get to know the community, but also building something new because polar prediction back then and probably to a certain degree still is today was a new topic. Huh? Uh, so I think it was a good combination uh, for me. And uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a great, you know, they gave me freedom and getting together my my steering group. They had a few good suggestions. They also had an mm -hmm. excellent suggestion in, uh, in proposing Neil Gordon as a WMO consultant. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, I was doing mostly research and for me, it was sort of the first experience with with research management and uh, you know, having the opportunity to work with someone like Neil Gordon back then, uh, that certainly, you know, had a, had an impact on my career. You know, I'm still using, some of you who know closely with me, uh, they know that I love mind maps, especially yeah. using iThoughts X. And uh, you know, that's certainly one of the legacies of working together with Neil. There are certainly many others as well. And yeah, and I think this initial time had quite some impact on you know how do I do research management uh, um, uh, these these days. Huh? So be, you became a manager with the year of polar prediction then. Well, at least uh, developed a management component. Yeah. I still pride myself, and even more so these days. You know, with 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 traveling, uh, you know, subdued, um, that I have still more more, more time to do research. I mean, I hope still I find a, a healthy balance be between the two. Yeah. But I mean, I remember also initially. I mean, I think I met the right people at the right time. Gilbert Brunet, mm -hmm. uh, Neil Gordon, uh, David Grimes, who was back then WMO president, and he was so until very recently. And I always thought you know attending a meeting you know where he was and chairing this he was in perfect control and wrapping up things so i think uh, you know that exposed me to the right kind of people at an early stage of my career and i have to say you're doing very well i mean what most impressed me since i work with you since uh, i think more than, more than four years now uh, was the ppp steering group meeting we had in helsinki um, that was last yeah. year when you were pretty sick, I have to say, and you... Yeah, I was running 39 and a half. I mean, it was today. <laughs> Everyone would, would say for sure you have... Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. We've got on for days. It didn't go down. I felt miserably and weak, but we had a great meeting. So That's what, what yeah. Thomas actually yeah. did was he was steering, he was um, sharing this meeting out of his bed. So he was uh, connected with us remotely. We are 
whatever, go to meeting or so. And he was sharing the entire PPP steering group meeting. That was a meeting for three days from out of his bed while we were sitting all in Helsinki and yeah, following what you suggested <laughs> to do. <laughs> I mean, I have to say the first afternoon was, I found pretty crappy. You know, I had the feeling, you know, and then, you know, I couldn't hear what people yeah. were saying. And that, But then I think we found some arrangements mm -hmm. in that night uh, that, you know, how to chair this and someone helping me there. Uh, and, and I think then the last two uh, two days, it worked very well. I have to say, though, I was expecting, and I was expecting, you know, going back, you know, to previous colds, the temperatures to go yeah. down. Basically, that was one of the most expensive meetings I have ever not attended. <laughs> Because every day I was you know, I was getting on the next yeah. flight of the next day, which then I could couldn't take, and it was always fully flexible. So yeah. you know, it turned out. I mean, I went from super cheap economy to flexible economy all the way to business, and I never made yeah, it. Yeah, because okay. you always thought you can go the next day, and then you. Couldn't. Yeah, no, but I couldn't. No, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. So so that was a. Truly impressive experience, Perhaps, I have to say, for me. That is a test you have to yeah. probably, probably that's a, yes, a test you have to you know put people at you know, for management <laughs> tests. Um, you know, give them something that they get sick and then have them exactly. share a meeting. You know, when I when I came here to the you know, when I when I applied here in Bremerhaven, it was one of the first times they carried out these tests. Okay, I had to go to you know Hanover to to a consultancy, ah. and it's a little bit like a psychology test, and and you know you have to perform and strain situations okay. and perhaps i can suggest that that is something we yeah. have to add okay sharing a meeting from your bed if you Definitely. feel miserable okay. yeah so so thomas um looking back to when it all began with the polar prediction project so far what do you think um has been achieved with this project and um What has maybe changed up to now with regard to weather and sea ice forecast, both for Arctic and Antarctic? What would you say are the successes so far for Job? I mean, I think it's fair to say, uh, although I'm, I may be slightly biased, you might last, <laughs> like to ask someone else, okay? But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's quite helpful to look back at the protocols of the first meeting. I think what happened is that basically Polar Prediction Project and Job have outperformed what we were expecting or dreaming of, you know, and I think in, in all kind of departments. Um, I mean, you know, we were certainly quite confident that we can do good research on prediction and taking lots of the knowledge that was there in, in, in you know, prediction in lower latitudes applied in high latitudes. I think this was all low-hanging fruit, but I mean, that we had something as visible as a year of polar prediction that we had, uh, you know, in, in, in calls, in major calls that uh, like the European uh, framework or in Norway or Italy or in Canada, that there were dedicated calls where it, it, the people were asked to contribute to mm. the year of polar prediction. I mean, that's certainly something we, we, we didn't expect. And I have to say, I mean, Yop is still surprising me nowadays. There's still, you know, quite quite some dynamics in there. And coming probably back to this later, but talking about the legacy, I mean, we certainly need a legacy. I don't think it should be Yop continuing, but I think, you know, I'm still getting surprised by by developments uh, uh, today. Like, for example, this Yop site map, this uh, that um, that Gunilla is, is is pushing, you know, with others, Tanail and others, having a data set that you can put models and high resolution observations next to each 
other. So that is very straightforward for researchers, you know, to do research. I mean, lowering basically the hurdles yeah. in doing science. You know, I mean, that's something we haven't dreamt about uh, back then. Now, we didn't have this on our cards. Now, sort of lots of things that um, that um, that I think have developed beyond what we originally um, envisaged. I mean, I think we were quite confident that certain parameterizations would be improved. Mm-hmm. I think it was also quite clear that we would be having these special observing periods. But I think mm-hmm. the surprise is a little bit, you know, that by at least you know by adding extra radio sons that the impact is moderate at least you know if you if you average this over many cases in many days yeah. this is probably something a surprise going in, in 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 the other direction you know and i remember the discussion we had at the first meeting in, in september i think it was tw- 2011 and at wmo in geneva and peter bauer who was already on the steering group back then i mean he was always talking let me we need to we need to define something that when asked in 10 years from now, we can use to measure whether we are successful. We can call this key performance (laughs) indicators. I don't know whether we quite succeeded in that, and um, that's always quite quite difficult. But we were certainly working on the ambition in order to to make something um, quantifiable. I mean, having said that, I mean in principle, you know, this the Polar Prediction Project (WMO) and the World Weather Research Program. It's about coordinating research, enabling it, workshops, and then you know, for people to jump onto the opportunity to do cutting edge research. And I think in terms of paving the field, getting meetings organized where people come together you know getting funding channeled to people that's what we were meant to do in order to generate visibility for the topic i think we succeeded and i mean that the science flies as well of course that's a nice bonus but if you look at the mission statement of the polar prediction it's about coordination mostly it's not doing research you know Mm -hmm. because uh, that is something that has to come from from the people and the community yeah What do you think um, about this current uh, Corona situation? Were there any, I don't know, drawback from from this on on the project? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we have been, you know, fairly lucky in terms of our timing with the yeah. year of polar prediction. Having said that, uh, I hope that um, this uh, YOP site map, um, this site model in a comparison project, I mean, there's a meeting lined up for autumn next year or meetings lined up. I hope I hope they don't suffer from that. But I think in principle, we are in fairly good shape. Having said that, and, you know, coming also a little bit to the topic of, you know, this ice pot, um, I mean, we are very strongly linked with Mosaic. Eh? Yeah. And uh, Mosaic, in a sense, is not out of the woods yet. I mean, we are confident that they keep drifting. But... Uh, you know, it's not exactly, you know, like we, we were planning um, this, uh, we were not uh, thinking this would unfold, you know, with a faster drift and, you know, with now having to go out of the ice and back into the ice. So, I mean, that certainly has an, has an, has an impact. Yeah. Uh, but overall, you know, from, a, from purely from a polar prediction or yacht perspective, I think the pandemic couldn't have come at a better timing so that we have sort of in between you i know you know i put it in you know yeah yeah, yeah uh, of course we are just fit you know through so many planning stages and people know what to do and the next big thing is really the next really big thing is the job final summit in may 2022 i think most of the things that come in between you know the, the next year's steering group meeting and so forth you know, this could be done online. Also, our next major mm-hmm. education component, the school, where you really want to get people together. Yeah. That's 2022. And we hope, of course, that the situation is much better then. So I think, 
you know, given the circumstances, I think we got away uh, rather lightly, at least what, from what I can say up to today, you know. Perhaps yeah. I changed my mind when we look back at the, the last few years when we meet in Montreal at the York Final yes. Summit in ask you, May Ask you again in two years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to bridge to well, the second reason why we called you here today and why we're doing this interview, which is related to this uh, targeted observing period. So these are the 2.0 versions, let's say, of the special observing periods, which were the flagship initiative of the, of the Polar Prediction Project and that took place both in the Arctic and Antarctic and were aiming to basically increase observations in the polar regions through a coordinated effort, as you were mentioning. And now we are doing this targeted observing period. We were mentioning this together already with Gunilla. So if you have missed that episode, go back and listen to it because she is uh, explaining that very well. Why, was these, uh, why were these targeted observing period coming to place and uh, why were they, they were necessary in the end? But so just to introduce the fact that in this occasion for the first targeted observing period, we launched this uh, Twitter challenge. So we were asking people to make their um, temperature predictions for the mosaic, for the uh, Polarstern location for, I think it was the weekend after Easter, um, 15th of April. And you ended up being the winner. <laughs> so you were the closest to the actual uh, registered um, temperature at the location. How did you make your forecast? So what data did you use? I mean, in practical terms, I did what everyone else was probably doing. I, I, you know, I chose a forecast or a set of forecasts of my, my choice and then you know, looked at things and made my estimate based on that. And I took um, ECMWF forecasts. And um, I mean, um, I, you know, I, unfortunately, at the moment, I have more limited access, you know, to some of these ensemble forecasts, for example, they're not necessarily freely available. So what I did is basically I, I used uh, YR.no, this Norwegian implementation of ECNWF forecast, where actually we directly targeted Mosaic. So that is a station which, I mean, basically something that wouldn't have happened without um, you know, without the op, um, mm -hmm. that basically Jorn Christiansen from Met Norway, he agreed to, you know, put this drifting point, uh, um, you know, drifting station around Polarstern into, into this app from the Norwegian Met service. And basically I looked at that, that is, a, you know, the only thing is that was accessible to me was a so-called deterministic forecast. So one single high resolution forecast. Um, and I didn't have any access to ensemble forecasts. And I think, you know, looking back at, at this, mm -hmm. uh, the Twitter discussion, I mean, there turned to be out quite a bit of discussion, you know, about this topic of deterministic um, versus um, probabilistic forecast. But I took basically, you know, the data from this from this app. On the app, mm -hmm. you see something like seven yeah. days. Oh, okay. But I have other means as well. There's something like, you know, you. I mean, basically, I was... Gunilla was the first actually who spotted the event. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what she used, uh, um, but uh, she was the one first spotting it. I think she looked at ECM the VF forecasts, and and I was looking at them as well. But I think yeah, no. I mean that's something mm -hmm. like up to seven days in advance they should be having uh, uh, data available, and that fairly you know. So the the nine degrees difference between your first and your second guess were due to 
a change in the forecast, simply, you know, uh, nine degrees change in the forecast. I mean, the, the, the thing was, um, you know, we had a cutoff day of two, I mean, we had a cutoff of two days, you know, I mean, at least, you know, that, that's what usually is considered a short range forecast. Yes. But people started to throw in their forecasts already, you know, a few days. And, you know, that, and especially in that situation that turned out and probably come back to this later, it was a situation that was not very predictable. Okay. Um, and they were, of course, it was a disadvantage, I think, five days before because the uncertainty was so high. So basically, it was just like what we normally do when we are interested in event. I just updated the forecast as new knowledge came in okay so normally if i'm planning my weekend you know do i do I, do I have to do invite people for a barbecue outside you know i start you know inviting people a week before and then i have my seven day forecast or something yeah. and then you know i'm and you know, every day i'm looking and then you know sometimes uncertainty is high and then it collapses and things become the uncertainty and become certain and so you always update your decision making in that regard and so for me it was just an update i think i stopped doing it after this three day i don't think i did an, an update you know the last day before i stuck to my forecast also partly i think because it simply didn't change anymore yeah I think for the audience, we have to go back a little bit. So we asked um, people to give a forecast for Sunday, 19th of April, 12 UTC. And I think we um, put the request on Twitter on Wednesday, the 15th of April. And we said, okay, we want your forecast until Friday, 6 p.m. UTC. So that was what what yeah. we were asking for and then we had quite a number of forecasts so i wonder thomas if you just looked at this app and maybe at some other why did other people have so difficulties to forecast this then what I mean, were they thinking too complicated or well, i think that the, <laughs> the simple fact is that this was a situation where the uncertainty was very high you know i yeah. mean that was a situation i mean you know most of the times the atmosphere is fairly predictable um, mm -hmm. you know but that sometimes you know you have you have situations where the, the atmosphere becomes very unstable where small errors in the observations or in models they grow very quickly and then you know lead to large forecast yeah. errors and we turned out to be in just such a situation you know i mean small difference changes in the location of this you know mild warm air intrusion just meant widely different temperatures okay okay so mm -hmm. i think the uncertainty was very high and depending on which forecast someone used you know they just sampled something like minus 20 versus i don't know one degree but that was the inherent uncertainty and hence unfortunately uh, the the main explanation as to why i was successful was you know i was lucky that I picked the right thing and, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, it's fair to say. The Year of Polar Prediction is an initiative of the World Meteorological Organization. It is a 10-year program with the goal to improve weather and sea ice forecast in the Arctic and Antarctic. The Year of Polar Prediction brings together the international science community with the national weather centers and those people who are actually using weather and sea ice forecast in their daily work and life. Mosaic is a huge international project coordinated by the German Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research. For one year, from September 2019 to October 2020, Polarstern, the German research icebreaker, is frozen into the central Arctic sea ice. 
Around Polarstern, there is a distributed network of instruments set up of the surrounding sea ice flow. These instruments on the ice provide a unique data set that never existed before. In particular, measurements will be taken during polar night. These extra observations will cover all aspects in the Arctic, from the atmosphere through the sea ice and into the deep ocean. These observations will improve our understanding of the changing Arctic climate and weather. Based on this better understanding, models that forecast weather and sea ice in the Arctic can be improved, which is crucial for the year of polar prediction. Therefore, Mosaic has been endorsed by the Euro Polar Prediction, as it will significantly contribute to making better weather and sea ice predictions for the Arctic. Some other weather situation, you would have got sort of 20 different forecasts from people and always saying minus 22 or minus 23. And probably the, mm -hmm. the, the truth would have been ended up somewhere there. But mm -hmm. you know, we are, you know, especially with these intrusions and these targeted observing periods, of course, we are targeting exciting weather, you know, where that is challenging yeah. to predict and where lots of, you know, physical and dynamical processes play a role. That's why we target them, because we think they matter, you know, for climate, but also for prediction. And then it's inherently difficult to predict, you know, and, uh, you know, ensembles tell you. And by the way, this, you know, uh, when you have single deterministic forecast, the fingerprint of periods of low predictive skill is jumpiness. Jumpiness in the sense mm -hmm. that, you know, when you when you look at today's forecast for that event, that this is radically different, say, from previous day or tomorrow's. When the forecast is jumpy, if you have only a single forecast, then this is an indication that, you know, the predictability is very limited. So there's even a term mm -hmm. in the weather prediction community where they talk about the jumpiness of forecasts. Okay. So was there even a, a possibility that this warm air intrusion would not reach Polarstern or was that clear from the beginning that it would go over Polarstern's location? Well, it wasn't really clear um, whether it, I mean, I think touching it, it looked fairly certain, but I think mm -hmm. it was never really clear. You know, um, okay. so mm -hmm. there's always a risk. I mean, I think, I don't know how many days in advance Gunilla spotted it. Might have been more than 10 days in a, 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 that she said, you know, there might be some interesting weather situation coming up. And certainly by that time, it wasn't clear. I think by the time we were, um, we were asking the community, it was clear that a warm air intrusion would be going into the interior of the Arctic, but it wasn't clear yeah. whether it would be sort of hitting Uh, polar stern straight on or whether polar stern would be just touched by you know on the, on the side yeah. and given that there are strong gradients you know the exact position of that intrusion uh, matters a lot mm. and i mean you predicted minus 0.1 degree centigrade and before that some weeks before or even yeah a week before it was still minus 40 degrees centigrade yeah. so That's what it yeah. does. I mean, these are the warm intrusions, you know, then, you know, they bring basically what they do is they bring, you know, the air with its property from mid latitudes and, you know, yeah. to the Arctic, to the interior Arctic in a matter of hours, you know, perhaps days. And of course, as this goes along this air mass, it's transformed. And that's what interests Gunilla and others a lot, you know, mm -hmm. the physical processes. But, you know, a lot of the properties, they are, they are advected and brought to the Arctic so quickly that they can't 
lose the heat they're having, you know, by radiation out to space. Yeah. So they keep some of this property, and then it's just, you know, you have. We have seen in, in previous years, we have seen events in the middle of winter where you basically buoys that were sitting in the central Arctic were recording melting events. Okay. Um, it is fairly, uh, fairly, mm-hmm. fairly extreme. And that's a very exciting type of event. And, uh, and I think if you look at, you know, and there are people like Felix Petern and others, they, they looked at uh, different characteristics of Arctic air masses. And it looks there mainly two types of air masses. One, that has its origin, you know, in the Arctic itself with all the properties mm-hmm. there. And then there's a second type of air mass that originates from lower latitudes with different characteristics. And if you sample the air on top of you, you can pretty much tell what the origin of that is, you know. And uh, so it's almost like... Two, two because positive. of the temperature. Temperature, cloud, moisture, and, uh, you know, there are some, you know, there are a number okay. of fingerprints. Or there is a fingerprint mm-hmm. that you know contains a bit more information than moisture, vertical profile, and and stuff. But in principle, you can say, you know, in, in simplistic term, there are two type of you know air masses in the Arctic. One that has been there for lots of time and you know cooled and all the rest, and and then one you know mm-hmm. from lower latitudes. So so where did this? I mean, you say mid latitudes or lower latitudes. Where where did this air mass start, or where did it come from? going into the I Arctic? Mean, I mean, it comes from the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually you have two main pathways of these warm and moist air intrusions into the Arctic. And one is, you know, um, just east of Greenland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically what, what happens is you have the jet stream and then, you know, um, this starts to undulate and the amplitude becomes larger and larger. Uh, and then, you know, then on one side there, the, the air is brought in, you know, from, from the North Atlantic to the, to the Arctic. And again, you know, most of them, they are, you know, going east of Greenland. And that was another case of this. Mm-hmm. And quite often, actually, they, they hit New Orleans in Spitsbergen. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, uh, and I think there was a, I was it a year ago, a couple of years ago, you know, they had a, in, in the middle of winter, that is super warm and moist air event where it was raining. And, you know, they had landslides and stuff, you know. I mean, this is super high impact weather in, in New Orleans or in, in Svalbard more, more generally. And that is something like a, you know, that's a track where you see this quite often. And a secondary one you see uh, in the Bering Strait in the North Pacific, you know, you can also have, you know, sometimes they go over Alaska and then into the into the Arctic. But there are some main tracks where this is, where this is happening. So is the air, is that... The jet stream that brings the warm air into the Arctic? In principle, yes. I mean, the, the jet stream is responsible for, for lots of things. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes unstable. You know, it generates low pressure systems and, uh, um, you know, and then it also acts as a guide, waveguide for the low pressure systems, you know, along which they travel. So I think, you know, the jet stream is super important mm-hmm. for the dynamics of the atmosphere in mid latitudes. And also when it turns out, you know, when it turns um, out to linkages between mid latitudes and the Arctic. Now, the interesting thing is what we, you know, what we recently found was this, these intrusions of warm air from mid latitudes to the Arctic. That's a very hot topic. Of course, the other direction is a very hot topic as well, mm-hmm. you know, Arctic on mid-latitudes. Mm-hmm. And what we found is what, what's really emerging is that periods where, where the mid-latitudes impact the Arctic through these intrusions are also periods 
where actually the Arctic is influencing mid-latitudes, especially over Eurasia. And that's just because, you know, there's a sort of uh, meandering of the jet stream and, you know, where it has okay. southerly wind component, it brings the air to the Arctic and then, you know, undergoing transformation, interacting perhaps with Greenland. You know, there are lots of sources of forecast errors. And then once it's entering the Arctic, the, the jet stream is going to the south towards Eurasia, Japan and, mm -hmm. uh, and Russia. Usually you, these configurations, they occur together. So it looks like from a prediction perspective that, that periods of strong impact of mid-latitudes on high latitudes are also periods of strong impact of the Arctic on mid-latitude weather. So it's periods where you have strong two-way interaction between the two regions. And I think that is something that you know, has been worked by Johnny Day and others recently in the context of, of, uh, of YOP. Uh, that clearly show that. And I think that, you know, that is something to that degree people didn't have on their radar. And again, it's all down to the jet stream. Eh? If it's elongated and producing something like an, a so-called blocking anticyclone sitting somewhere over Scandinavia, yeah. then you have prime conditions for this to happen. The, the polar prediction project is, of course, targeting the polar regions, and they are somehow perceived sometimes maybe from more of the general publics, but to some degree also maybe policymakers or researchers a bit far away. So if you had to advocate for, for polar research, why would you think not just general people, but maybe also um, users or funders also, like the funding agency, why should they promote or like dedicate a little bit more attention to polar regions? I mean, I think, you know, we think of them being far away. But I mean, if you live in, in the north of Germany, like, like, like we do, for example, I mean, it's just a couple of thousand kilometers, of the, the, the polar region or the Arctic is, is yeah. you know, that's a short distance, given the distances normally, uh, signals can impact remote regions all over the world. So I think in terms of teleconnections in the atmosphere I would consider when you consider Europe and the Arctic and if you consider North America and the Arctic and Russia and the Arctic people would consider this close neighborhood okay I mean there are bigger distances when you consider the the Enzo, the El Nino Southern Oscillation phenomenon, you know, that sits in the tropical Pacific and that impacts North America, that's thousands of kilometers, okay? And, you know, there's even some imprint of on Europe and that's 10,000. These are vast distances. Compared to what the, the atmosphere is capable of doing, yeah. I would think the Arctic is closer to us than the tropics are, okay? I mean, therefore, I think it, it makes sense to, you know, to consider this from a European mid-latitude perspective, the relevance. Yeah. You know, but, uh, of course, probably the biggest interest in the Arctic is just the, the speed with which things are changing over there. I mean, you know, it's super fast. It's crystal clear, you know, what the cause for most of these changes are, most of these changes. You know, there might be some natural variability superimposed, but I think a large part of what we are seeing can be explained by, by human activities. So I think the environment is changing to such a degree that the knowledge from the past it may not be sufficient to understand what's going on now and in the future. Um, so I think that makes it a very, um, very attractive area. And it can be home to, to many surprises. When it comes to especially climate projection, you know, we are fairly confident that probably global mean temperatures, we, we are doing right. But I mean, what we don't want is, especially in all this adaptation discussion, we don't want to have any climate surprises. So that's what's coming our way lies completely out of the range you know we are 
predicting to the public and to adapt to, you know, or base decision on in terms of mitigation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the, the polar regions more generally, I think they are home to potential surprises on longer timescales. There's Greenland, ice sheet, sea level, or in the Antarctic, probably more so closer to a tipping point, perhaps already. There's permafrost and, you know, there are tipping points related to marine life in the Arctic. There might, there's evidence that if sea ice disappears and you would make the atmosphere cold again, it might recover after two years. It, it, it seems sea ice seems to be having quite a quite a strong healing capacity. But I mean, perhaps two years without sea ice, you know, might be very destructive for marine life. And I think there are a lot of potential surprises, and therefore you need to understand the system, you know, in order to hedge against mm -hmm. any climate surprises in the. In the, in, in the future. And if there are some, we have to understand whether they're coming our way and uh, you know, yeah. make decisions based on that. Would you say, I mean, during your career, was there any of these surprises already for you? Something you haven't really expected and has changed well, so far? Um, I mean, I think people were... I mean, during my career, I think it's fair to say that, that the degree to which there was warming and decline of sea ice in the late mm -hmm. 2000s. I think that took everyone by surprise. And I think yeah. nowadays, I mean, there is evidence that this is not, this acceleration is not purely due to anthropogenic, I mean, sort of human impacts. But I think it's increasingly clear that the superposition of, you know, something more slowly man-made, Uh, man-made decline and on top of this you had natural variability that need led to additional warming mm -hmm. and and sea ice decline and that made it really really rapid okay so i think back then that was a surprise and probably yeah. and without this summer in, in minimum sea ice extent in 2007 we might not have had a polar prediction project i mean it was so dramatic that people thought i mean they were so much taken by surprise and thought, mm -hmm. well, if this is coming our way, mm -hmm. you know, we are not prepared, we need to do something. So I think this was one of the key factors as to why we have a polar prediction project and the year of polar prediction. I mean, that's certainly uh, that's certainly a surprise. To me, another surprise goes around this discussion, Arctic sea ice decline and the impact on you know weather and climate in Europe. And I think it's surprising how small a response models show. You know, I mean, you really, I mean, if you take a climate model and you take out the sea ice, you know, you would think that weather would go wild here in Europe. Okay, you really take the hammer out. You know, in winter, having sea ice versus having no sea ice, it means basically mm -hmm. 20 degrees warmer temperature temperatures without mm -hmm. sea ice. That's not a small perturbation. Yeah. And the fact that the models seem to be not caring a lot about this. I mean, you see something, there's no doubt about this. But if you would do something similar, something comparable in the tropics, I mean, the world would explode. <laughs> Let's say, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I think that is yeah. a surprise as well that needs to be understood. Mm -hmm. It may very well be that nature is like that. But it could also be an indication that something is really seriously wrong in our models that needs to be addressed. And I think that is a in my view a surprise um, um, uh, as well okay so so looking at these uh, models this could be one task for the coming years until um, the end of yop to really understand what the models are doing in terms of these uh, big changes and what would you think would be other tasks for until the end of yop which is an end of uh, 2022 
Yeah, well, you could probably go through the different components of you know our mm -hmm. prediction systems, and then you find tasks in in each of them. I mean, certainly model. You know, I mean, you know, improving model and reducing substantially, and not not just a little bit, but be going in, in model development beyond incremental improvement. I think that's what is needed. And the interesting thing is about this. I mean, you always think when you know people think you improve your models, and okay, they buy, you get better predictions and stuff. What, what people do not appreciate is that if your models has problems, then there are lots of good data out there that you can't use because the observations and the models are so far apart that you can't marry them. You can't bring them together. Focusing on research that significantly increases the uptake, what's there already and that will be coming in the future, taking expensive satellite data that yeah. costs, I don't know, a billion to bring up, you know, and then making, you know, increasing, you know, the uptake of that by, I don't know, 30, 40 or 50 percent in regions, I think. I think that's a major advantage. But in principle, of course, all this discussion on the observing system, you know, I mean, how to do this in a smart way. And um, I think um, when I entered the 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 Arctic as a polar business, I mean, at ECMWF before I was doing research in the Arctic, but also in the tropics and mid-latitudes, so I was a bit of an all-rounder. And uh, what I noticed was mm -hmm. when going into the polar regions and the Arctic, when it comes to the observing system, it's a lot about monitoring you know, look at long time series and change. And the other is process understanding. My feeling is that we are we, we need increasingly more of the observing system. We need to initialize forecasts and then the optimality of your observing system looks different than when you just want to monitor or you understand processes. So I think the complexity, you know, what your observing system should be able to do is increasing. And uh, that's something that needs visibility and appreciation by people as well. And I think that, you know, with, with the Polar Prediction Project, uh, I think we are contributing to that. Okay, so so thank you very much, Thomas, for for having um, you here in this uh, bonus episode of the iSpot. Actually, the second uh, series of the targeted observing periods episode. Yeah, um, it was really interesting talking to you, having you here, and uh, I think you have to rush now to the next online meeting. <laughs> Indeed, a couple of minutes left. Okay, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you again, Thomas. Hope to have you here soon again. Yes. Bye. Bye. The iSpot is produced by the Year of Polar Prediction International Coordination Office. With the technical support of Radio Weser TV. As well as the support by the communication team of Mosaic and the Alfred Wegner Institute. Editorial responsibility is with Kirstin Werner and Sara Pascoletto. Our theme music is composed by Kevin McLeod, available on incompetech.com. For any questions, please contact us at polarprediction at gmail.com.